It's an intervention in the academic study of the Middle East and bringing out the Assyrian voice. Hi friends and welcome to the Assyrian Podcast. My name is Steve and I'll be your host for this episode number 15. We're going to get to know Joseph or Joey Hermes. Joey has a bachelor's degree in history and religious studies from Arizona State University and he has a master's degree from the University of Chicago where he is currently in his second year as a PhD student in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. His research focuses on Assyrians in the late Ottoman Empire from the 18th to the 20th century. If you've ever wondered what Assyrians were doing about a hundred years ago, he's the one to talk to. Joey has extensive knowledge about Assyrians from all around Around the world. In this interview, you'll catch a feel for how important his work is not only for the Assyrian people, but for all people. His work helps us understand who we are today and how we got here. Now, before we jump into this week's episode, I want to give a shout out to Rhoda, our new Assyrian podcast host. That was a magnificent episode last week, and we're so thankful to have her on board. Also, a shout out to all the Assyrians I met at the Assyrian National Policy Conference. Thank you for your support and for coming up to me and encouraging me about what we're doing with the Assyrian podcast. Now, I want to remind you that if you like what you're hearing on the Assyrian Podcast, let us know by emailing us at assyrianpodcast at gmail.com, liking us on social media, and most importantly, subscribe and review the podcast. You can visit us on our website at www.assyrianpodcast.com and follow the links to subscribe using an iPhone or an Android. Also, remember to share this episode with your friends and help them to subscribe as well. Thank you for being part of our worldwide Assyrian Podcast community. Finally, I'd like to give a shout out and thank you to our sponsor, John Oshana from HomeSmart. Whether you are thinking about purchasing or selling your home either in Arizona or California, contact John O'Shauna Real Estate Professional at 209-968-9519, on Facebook at John O'Shauna Realtor, or at John.Oshauna on Instagram. Thank you so much, John, for being a supporter of the Assyrian Podcast. And now, let's get to know Joseph Hermans. Joey, thank you so much for being on the Assyrian Podcast. No, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. And I've known you for a long time and to be able to have you on the show. I think so many Assyrians need to hear your story. They need to hear about the work that you're doing. And I know you got your bachelor's degree in religious studies and history from Arizona State University. That's correct. And what was that like? It was a wonderful experience. You know, I I live in the Phoenix area. My family had moved there in 1998 and I attended Arizona State University right out of high school and... I mean, I changed my major around a couple of times, but ultimately I settled on on history and religious studies. I had some terrific professors there, and I wanted to continue my studies in both those fields. So, And you completed your bachelor's in four years? I actually completed my bachelor's in five years. Yeah, so it was the the additional major did require some extra coursework, and, and I was able to finish that in five years. And then what were you planning to do with a religious studies and histories degree? I've worked in various jobs, even throughout college. I mean, I, I've worked in sales all sorts of different types of positions. But both those fields were my, you know, I was very passionate about both. And originally, I was thinking about going to law school. It was, uh, you know, I think my parents really encouraged me to sort of pursue a more professional career. You know, at the same time, I was also strongly considering doing a doctorate of some sort. Initially, I was thinking about working on possibly Assyrian Christianity. 
just generally speaking, and then I was sort of moved slowly towards history. Now, my undergraduate degree was actually in the history portion of it was in American history, so I was a, I was really interested in the history of the American West. But that actually ends up serving you really well for your current work, but we'll get to that a little sure. later. Did you end up going to law school? I did. I went to law school for a year, right after my undergrad. Where did you go? Uh, right locally in Phoenix. Okay. Uh, I, I stayed there for law school for a year. I interned at a law firm uh, that dealt with uh, trust wills and estates. It, it, was a, it was a wonderful experience. However, I could tell right away it wasn't for me. And in many ways, it was sort of something that I felt my, my family more or less wanted me to do. And so after a year's worth of studying and working, you know, I came to the conclusion that I actually wanted to go back and, and get my doctorate. You had to get a master's and then go get your doctorate, right? That's correct, yeah. So what did you get your master's in? So my master's degree I received from the University of Chicago through their Center for Middle Eastern Studies. And that master's degree was a two-year program, and it was in Middle Eastern Studies. So I completed that, and then I did have to apply again for PhD programs. And then I was admitted to the University of Chicago's PhD program. I kept the same advisor, the same environment, so I continued there. And as far as like universities go, isn't University of Chicago one of the best places to go for Middle Eastern studies? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, they, We have a terrific department at the University of Chicago. I remember when I showed up there for the orientation, one of the professors had said, you know, this is the only one of the only departments in the world where you can study from ancient Sumer to the modern Middle East. I mean, you get everything, everything in between. So thousands of years of history, all in one department. And it's, it's a wonderful department. My colleagues there are all terrific. My advisor is a wonderful person, and I, I really enjoy working with her. And it's a terrific environment to really be working seriously on Middle Eastern history. So when you did your bachelor's and then you went to law school and realized you know, law school wasn't for you, you then continued to follow your passion for history, and you did Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Chicago. Yes. Which I'm sure choosing where you would end up studying and all of that was a big process. And then after you finished your master's, you made the leap into doctoral work to do a PhD in modern Assyrian studies. Yeah. So I work in like modern Middle Eastern, late Ottoman history. So I'm interested in the history of the Middle East in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And my current research is solely on like the Assyrian community, both in the Middle East and in the United States during the period of the First World War, post-World War period. But generally speaking, I'm, I'm interested in, in many of the political and social transformations that took place in the Middle East from the late 19th century uh, to the early 20th centuries. And one of the things I've noticed in your work is you're diving deep into letters people wrote back in 1914. You're actually evaluating relationships between Assyrians from Turkey and Assyrians from Iran and how they connected and what their stance was. So this isn't just... Joey's really into Assyrians. This is Joey's going deep into being a history person and bringing your expertise into what happened during those days. Yeah, absolutely. So my current research and the thesis that I worked on and, and completed recently was looking at uh, Assyrian-American political mobilizations after the First World War. And the one thing that I found particularly fascinating is not only the emergence of diverging attitudes about what Assyrians in America and the United States viewed as the like political future of Assyrians in the Middle East, but how harmony between Assyrians of the various religious sects. So yeah. like where, whether it was, um, you know, I'm looking at like the Jacobite Nestorian and Protestant Assyrians and their intermingling here in the United States and 
and essentially not only did that create a sort of social and cultural unity in the United States, another layer to it in the post-World War I period was the, the realization of an Assyrian state that could encompass like all the territories where these various Assyrians came from. So all the way from, you know, southeastern Turkey through Iraq and Iran and all these different territories uh, crossing all sorts of denominational boundaries. And, and, and that's where my current research is really focused on and seeing how this um, really the, the origins and, of the, and the conceptualization of an Assyrian homeland uh, as a political entity after the First World War. Yeah. And if I'm hearing you correctly, then there was lots of movement because people were being forced out, genocide, wars. As these people move from Iran, from Iraq, from Turkey, and they meet up in the United States, all of a sudden they're starting to notice that, look, we're one people, we've always been one people, and we've got to determine a plan for like a parcel of land. And that's what you're researching, like what were the different ideas and plans? Sure, yeah, I mean, that's one aspect of it, right? It's very interesting to see the sort of different conceptions they had and the sort of political projects they were trying to achieve in that period. Uh, but what you also see, though, is that the emergence of an Assyrian homeland as a political entity, like a geopolitical entity, was very much a product of the First World War and the experience of Assyrians in the First World War because it served multiple purposes, right? So this idea was quite popular at the time. It's referred to generally this 1917 to 1919 period as the Wilsonian moment. A professor at Harvard University, Eretz Manella, wrote a book called The Wilsonian Moment. And it's essentially a thesis that colonized and stateless peoples in the post-World War I period appropriated Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, the President of the United States at the time, his rhetoric whether it be in his Peace Without Victory speech from 1917 or his 14 points speech in 1918. And this idea emerged that a family of nations, right, the League of Nations was to be created and that all the nations of the world would have a seat at the table. And Assyrians, like many other communities throughout the world, saw that, you know, it gave them a political imperative to... So he was trying to create a world community. Yeah, and that's the idea of the League of Nations, right? Mm -hmm. It was this idea that the nations of the world, of course, in hindsight, we know that the colonized and stateless peoples really weren't in that picture. The family of nations that they were referring to was mostly the great European powers, and, uh, the ones who were actually doing all the colonizing uh, of what, what we refer to now as like the third world or colonized world. And nevertheless, like you see all these groups throughout the world mobilizing and trying to petition the world powers at the time to essentially create states or to free them from colonization or whatever sort of state of uh, limbo, political limbo they may have been in at the time. Uh, and so, yeah, Assyrians were very much a part of the historical moment. And I, I think from a historical perspective, what's really fascinating about it is that it really required Assyrians and it gave the imperative of actually conceptualizing the Assyrian homeland and, and drawing its borders on a physical map because obviously up until that time, Assyrians had many different conceptions of what was the homeland. And now uh, they were sort of thrust onto the world stage to actually formally conceptualize it and draw it on an actual map. And so that posed a lot of challenges, not only for Assyrians, but for, you know, the world powers as well. And as they were redrawing the Middle East and the world together. What could those people have done to have secured a parcel of land? And is there anything they could have done? Because what you described is... Yeah, we're pretending like we want to create a world community, but in reality, we've already parceled it out in the way that works best for us. And we're going to give others an opportunity to have their own, but then it didn't work out. And there's lots of people it didn't work out for. 
So what could have been done that would have made it work out if that's a reality? Sure. You know, I that's a question I really can't answer. And it, it's a question I don't think most historians would want to answer. It's not really, it's a sort of, it's a difficult, because obviously we can't predict the future and we can't really uh, look back at these things and, and, and make uh, any sort of like value judgments on them uh, in terms of what could have been done better or not. Uh, what I will say is this, is that the post-World War One period was a very disappointing uh, moment for many, many uh, stateless and colonized peoples throughout the world. And that's sort of the the second part of Eretz Manella's book on the Wilsonian moment, is that not only were peoples throughout the world mobilized by Wilson's rhetoric, right, and sort of this, the, the internationalism or internationalist language that was uh, very popular at the time, but it was also a part of the disappointments and the many popular rebellions that took place in 1919 and subsequent years against colonizing powers like the British in Egypt, the British in India as well. There, were, there was a rebellion against them in 1919, both in Egypt and India. Uh, in Korea, you had very similar instances uh, from Japanese occupation, I believe, and in China and other, other places throughout the world where I think people in the third world... Uh, began to realize that their hopes and dreams weren't going to be accomplished easily. And it was, you know, obviously, inevitably the same. It was the case for the Assyrians as well. And we're still there. We're, we're still thinking about getting our own land. Sure, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's uh, for anyone who's a sort of Assyrian political activist, political uh, organizations. I mean, that's uh, that's sort of the, the, the field that they operate in and in terms of like securing... Assyrian cultural and political rights uh, in in the Middle East. Uh, you know, our focus today is very much on Iraq, and in many ways, rightfully so. Uh, there are a lot of issues happening there that affect our people and, and, and require the attention of, of Assyrians throughout the world. My sort of thinking about this is to also look at the Assyrian, what, what some people refer to as the Assyrian question, right? This is this this idea of the settlement of Assyrians in the post World War One period that was discussed at the international level. We need to sort of like look at it from a much more global perspective because Assyrians are dispersed like throughout the entire world. And today our sort of focus is very much on Iraq. And even in the post-World War I period, it was very Iraq or Mesopotamia centric in some ways. But I mean, there are Assyrians throughout the whole world that require sort of our political intention as well. And so, I, yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult sort of field to navigate in many ways. But, yeah, I mean, that's definitely on political activists in the community and political organizations to do that work. Yeah. And you've made a strong distinction between you're an academic and not don't want to put on the political hat or the religious hat in terms of advocating a certain direction over another direction. Obviously, I'm very sympathetic to a lot of what's happening in the Middle East today. And I've lent my support in, in many different ways, whether it be through don you know, giving donations to humanitarian groups, supporting uh, political, legis like political legislation in the United States as a citizen, like many other people. And, and I think that's a really important aspect because our work in many ways still is very political, uh, even academic work. We discuss, we, you know, people always talk about sort of a disinterested position that people take in academia. And I think that, I mean, well, and maybe in some cases that may be true. I think that it's still tied very much, and rather it has political consequences regardless of whichever position it takes. And I'm, I'm, I try to be mindful of that. And I try to also remain as neutral as possible as well, because I do want to sort of uh, let my own work and my own studies sort of speak for themselves. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's definitely an issue that I have to navigate for myself personally. 
One of the things I really like about you and I've noticed since I've known you is you truly are a thinker. I've never had a conversation with you where I felt like, you know, this is one-sided or he doesn't understand the different points. You truly look at all the sides of an argument. So as a historian and as you've been reading other people's mail and as you're actually you're reading other people's mail in multiple languages because you can like read fluently Assyrian and what other languages? Sure. So I, I do have like a working reading knowledge, uh, like a professional reading knowledge of French. Um, and I, I am trying to work on German now, which is... Das very, ist gut. No, yeah, das ist gut. Uh, yeah, uh, du, yeah, ich spreche in uh, Deutsch, yeah. Um, no, uh, the thing is, is that... Uh, no, I'm working on German now because I do need... So my department actually has some very difficult, demanding requirements in terms of languages. And so sure. I do need to have two European languages. So French and German are my two main European languages uh, working on German now. And then I've also studied Arabic for a few years now. So I do, I do know, I mean, I can navigate modern standard Arabic texts and, and, and whatnot, especially with the help of a dictionary. I've also studied modern Turkish for a few years now, and I, I can get by that as well, fairly well. I was in Turkey over the summer as well, gave, gave me an opportunity to actually practice it a bit. What were you doing in Turkey? I, I took a summer Ottoman course, uh, or I'm sorry, it was a summer school program focusing on Ottoman Turkish. So I was studying Ottoman Turkish for like a month and a half Jeez. on an, a little island off uh, by the Aegean called Junda. And, and so I was, yeah, it was a wonderful experience. And so I was studying Ottoman Turkish there, a little bit of modern Turkish and, and even a little bit of Persian as well. So that, that was an interesting experience. So the languages I work with primarily are it's modern Eastern Assyrian, classical Syriac, some Arabic, some Ottoman Turkish, some modern Turkish. And then French is very prevalent, especially uh, for Assyrians in the post-World War I period. A, a lot of documents are recorded in French. And what's that doing to you, reading through those documents? How has that impacted you as a, as a human to, to read your ancestors? Sure, it's, you know, it's a really fascinating sort of experience to go through. The sources I look at right now primarily are newspapers. And I'm interested in, in the various Assyrian newspapers that were published in the United States in the 1910s and 20s. And I would say that on the one hand, many of the issues that they were going through are the same issues that we go through today, whether they be societal, political, social. I mean, many of the experiences are very similar in terms of adapting to a new country and importance of preserving our language and our history. These are all things that, that Assyrians were discussing you know, over 100 years ago in America. And I think that they were important questions then and they're still important questions today, as we can see. And the other aspect of it is sort of also seeing, at least in the American case, the development of our community and, and the various elements of our community here in the United States as, as they became, as essentially they became very much American and, and looking at the communities that we have, for example, uh, like reading articles about, you know, the early immigrants to Turlock, California, you know, and that which was the first planned Assyrian community outside of the Middle East. And, and, and that, you know, it's fascinating to be reading the letters. Why did they choose Turlock? So there's actually a wonderful author, a scholar here in, in California, Dr. Ariane Shaya, who's written two books on this topic. And I, I would recommend, I, I don't recall the names exactly, uh, and I, I want to do them justice. So I would, I would just say a quick Google search. You should be able to pull up her information. But it was a planned community from Iran. There were Assyrian farmers who sold their lands in Iran before the First World War and wanted to find sort of a community that, that they could, you know, essentially start a farming community uh, somewhere else. And they were fooled into buying land in Canada. And <laughs> they were stuck in Canada for a while. And then eventually this community immigrated to the Turlock, California area, 
which is, you know, very prevalent farming. And uh, and I believe they opened up a variety of different... It was uh, a watermelon capital of the world at one point. Okay, yeah, there you go. I mean, I'm not... I'm not I so, think, I think that's... Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, and so they started uh, vineyards there and other sort of farming-related ventures. And, 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 you know, obviously that was the first plant community in the sense that, you know, multi, you know many families sort of all coordinated together and, and settled in one area, right? Rather than following more economic trails to the United States, you know, many people came to Chicago and New Britain uh, because that's where many of the jobs were at. So. so again, going back to the question of as you're reading these different people's journeys and their lives has anything really just grabbed you or moved you that you wouldn't mind sharing yeah absolutely i think one of the the most enduring things that i've come across is assyrians in the united states sort of pushing their co-assyrian their fellow assyrians in the united states to organize politically and to organize on a more national scale. So for example, there was an attempt to establish like an Assyrian treasury and sort of these very ambitious sort of projects. And I think that in many ways, you know, that could have served the Assyrian community if, you know, if there was an attempt to actually start some sort of Assyrian fund or Assyrian humanitarian organization a hundred years ago, it may have had very lasting impact on the community. Unfortunately, as far as I know, most of those attempts were mostly unsuccessful. Probably the longest lasting, I would say, of these attempts has been like the Assyrian American National Federation, which mm-hmm. was established in 1933. And that was established for the purposes of assisting Assyrians affected by the Samela massacre of, of Iraq in 1933, but also serving as a political and humanitarian, a political voice in the United States and as a, a humanitarian arm for Assyrians as well to send back support to Assyrians throughout the Middle East at the time. And so for you, seeing the entrepreneurial nature of these early settlers is eye-opening? Yeah, definitely. There was really a concerted effort to do well for the community. They didn't come to America and simply just want to forget about the places they came back from, right? I mean, even though they had left those countries, much like Assyrians today, we still have our ear to the ground, so to speak, right? We're very much interested in what's happening there. But we definitely want to stay involved in, in terms of the, the future of Assyrian people in, in the Middle East. So going back to what we were discussing earlier, those folks between 1915 and 1917, um, as they're collaborating and as they're looking at what the next steps are, and they weren't successful, right? They weren't able to get a parcel of land. Yeah, they, they weren't able to establish an Assyrian state per se. And we probably should just specify who these people are that we're talking about. So I would say probably the two most prominent figures in the United States at that time uh, who seemed to have gotten quite a bit of attention like outside of the Assyrian community were the Reverend Joel Wadda, uh, who wrote a book uh, called The Flickering Light of Asia in 1924. And it was a what, sort of, What kind of church did he run? He was a Protestant-trained clergyman from Iran. He came to the United States to complete his education. And uh, he started... He, I believe he ran a church uh, in New York somewhere. And But he was <clears> like a big-time activist? Yeah, so very much so, yeah. He, he's an interesting character in many ways, but he was behind many of the early Assyrian newspapers that were established in the United States. One popular one that was published in English and in Ottoman Turkish was called the New Assyria. Obviously, in, in its name alone, it was, you know, they were very uh, open about their sort of hopes in establishing a New Assyria, like a New Zealand and these other sort of countries. Then he also published uh, a modern Eastern Assyrian newspaper out of New York called the Assyrian American Courier. He was an important figure in sort of um, rallying and, and bringing together Assyrians, Western Assyrians and Eastern Assyrians together 
uh, no, Western Assyrians, for anyone who doesn't know, that's Assyrians who are from what we refer to as the Jacobite Rite Church uh, from Torabdin, from southeastern Turkey. And, and so he was very instrumental in sort of bridging uh, the connections between the Eastern and Western Assyrians in the, in the United States. So like in 1914, he met with Naum Fayek, among other men, prominent community leaders from both sides in New York. Who was the last person you just mentioned? Naum Fayek, very prominent. How do you say that? Naum Fayek. Fayek. Yeah, Fayek. Fayek. Yeah, and uh, and so they met in New York in 1914, and uh, the Assyrian National Associations of America was born as a result of that meeting. And that served as a umbrella organization for Assyrians in the United States, and it was essentially the predecessor of the Assyrian American National Federation, the sort of model of various local chapter organizations and united under one larger umbrella organization and in order to sort of coordinate efforts at a national level. Just talking to you, Joey, I've got this big smile on my face. I don't know anyone who's gone this deep into that time period and you know all these people's names, you know where they met, what they talked about. That is amazing, and that is so unique. There isn't many people studying modern Assyrian studies there for, are, their, for their PhD. Sure, there aren't, there aren't a whole lot out there, but I would actually, you know, I would say that there are actually quite a number of members of our community who are really well-informed. Uh, they may not be professional academics, but they actually know quite a bit about this history. And that's why I think it's also important to like reach out to these members of the community and sort of inform them, like build, build those sort of, sort of connections, because they may have archival material that, that could be useful for to research and study at an academic level. And then I would also say a lot of material is actually available, especially on Assyrian history. I mean, if you know people are interested in reading Assyrian history from an Assyrian perspective, I mean, there have been a number of writers who've written books uh, documenting our history in the 19th and 20th centuries. And yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of great material out there that Assyrians can sort of just pick up. I mean, Joel Wada's book, The Flickering Light of Asia, is a, is a great... Uh, what a name, huh? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting book. It's a great book, book title, The Flickering Light of Asia. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's so cool that your Arizona State history degree in the United States and the American West ended up serving you so well because you understand sort of these Assyrians and what it was like for them when they showed up in the United States. You were able to bring those two worlds together. Um, another, I think, an important question is, where is this going to go? Like, when are you going to be getting your PhD officially? Like, when do I have to call you Dr. Hermes? <laughs> do I, can I still call you Joey after that? Or uh, One time, a friend of mine said that, uh, you know, only my students call me doctor, so, you know, friends don't need... No, but... Uh, I'd happily take some courses from you. Yeah, but, sure. but, yeah, when do you end up... When does that get settled? And then what does the future look like after that? Sure, yeah. Now, I still have um, at least a few more years left here before... I mean, I'm not even at the writing stage of my dissertation. I, I, I haven't even proposed it yet, so... So you already, with the knowledge you have, you're not even ready to write right now. No, I'm not. Not not technically, yeah. I, I still have to complete my, what they refer to as comprehensive exams, so that's quite intensive. And they're going to ask you everything. That's the tough... That's what a comprehensive exam is, right? They're going to start... Yeah, so, it, yeah, my university has a particularly difficult exam process. I mean, we have to sort of be familiar with essentially all the major themes and aspects of Middle Eastern history from the time of Muhammad to the present time. So, I mean, you can sort of imagine that's quite a lot of history 
especially for someone who doesn't work on you know early Islamic history or medieval history or anything like that. So uh, it's it's definitely challenging, but I'm, I'm up for the challenge, and I, mean, I hope I, I do well, and you know I can continue on to uh, proposing my dissertation at some point, uh, which that'll also require me to give it some serious thought about what I want to actually write about, and then actually getting to the point of uh, researching and writing uh, the dissertation as well. And once you finish there, I hate to ask you to predict the future. Maybe you're just focused on you know one day at a time, but do you have plans for after that? Sure, yeah. I mean, my, my objective is to work in academia, essentially be a professional academic. And that's sort of like, you know, objective number one. That's, that's what I'd like to do. So, and then we'll just kind of go from there. What you're studying is this really unique thing, Assyrian studies. What's the value? Where do you see it going? Why Assyrian studies? Sure. Now, Assyrian studies is very much a, a burgeoning field within, we could say, like Middle Eastern studies generally. And so we do have a number of Assyrian scholars here in the United States uh, who have been publishing material for oh the last, like I would say within the last 10 years, there's quite a, been quite a number of uh, academic material that's been published by people like Professor Sargon Donabid and, and others as well. I mean, I, I, there's many, many I could name. Uh, and so Assyrian studies essentially is an attempt to, it's an intervention in the academic study of the Middle East and bringing out the Assyrian voice and, and many aspects of it, whether it's in contemporary Middle Eastern history, if it's early 20th century history, incorporating the Assyrian narrative into these larger narratives uh, about uh, Middle Eastern history. And I would say that it has been very challenging because it is a somewhat relatively new endeavor. And it also lacks in many ways the sort of institutional and financial support that other sort of area studies or we could say maybe ethnic group studies enjoy, like Armenian studies or Jewish studies. Do you anticipate that improving? You know, I spent a little bit of time actually looking at the history of, you know, Armenian studies. And, you know, it very much emerged early on as an attempt by Armenian communities, for example, like in Massachusetts, who saw the value of, you know, researching and writing about and preserving Assyrian, I mean, I'm sorry, Armenian history. And so there was an attempt to establish a position at Harvard University, uh, among other places. And uh, I mean, I, I know that there's a, a professor here in the United States, uh, Dr. Eden Nabi, and she's worked on establishing Assyrian endowments throughout various universities at, at Harvard University as well to sort of encourage the universities to purchase books on Assyrian history, to preserve Assyrian material. You know, Harvard University has the largest collection of modernist, like we could say, quote-unquote, modern Assyrian material. That's material mostly from the 19th and 20th centuries. Is that right? Yeah, it has one of the largest, I mean, all sorts of different publications and books and manuscripts. It's a, it's a very, very comprehensive sort of collection of material on Assyrian history. But, I mean, even beyond that, I, I think there is, we see it actually here in, in California. It's uh, California State University Stanislaw. Francis Sergis established an endowment at that university that includes both a, uh, a book collection as well as a, a, a full-time like history pr professor position as well, where they teach modern Assyrian history there. And, and I think that's, you know, that's a wonderful step, but it's going to require individuals, philanthropic individuals within our community to support these sorts of endeavors. Otherwise, it's still lacking serious uh, financial support to really get off the ground and, and to be established at in places where there are large Assyrian populations, like in Chicago, other parts of California, um, I mean, even in like Arizona and other places as well. So let's take being a Syrian off the table for a second and imagine we're not a Syrian. 
what you would argue is there is still this important need to get the Assyrian perspective on the Middle East because it's simply a perspective that isn't covered and it adds a different narrative. These people are different than the rest of the Middle East. They're Christian and they're a unique flavor of Christianity. What else do you think that the Assyrian narratives that could be brought out from the Middle East, what, what other value do they bring to the, to the greater world that we need to be doing these PhD works in Assyrian studies? Sure, I mean, I think researching and writing about Assyrian history is important on many different levels. I would say that, you know, I mean, we can go into many different uh, areas. But I, I would argue that generally speaking, uh, at least in the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, the Assyrians occupied territories that required the attention of the international community to sort of take action because in terms of drawing the new borders of the Middle East, they intersected with many areas where Assyrians had resided for thousands of years now. And it had great consequences on our community. Uh, and it, it's, it's very much a teachable sort of moment in understanding how separation and partition uh, of, of territories can negatively affect peoples and maybe sometimes positively affect peoples, I don't know. Uh, but in the Assyrian case, it very much disrupted and disconnected a cultural unity that had existed for quite some time. Uh, and obviously, like uh, in Turkey, that's um, you know a very unique position because there are no Assyrians in really in, uh, of any sizable number in in the Hakkadi region, where many of them fled, and generally even the number of Christians in general in, in Turkey is, is pretty insignificant at this point. And then you see what's happening now as well in, in Iraq and, and Syria, uh, you know, because this is contemporary history. I mean, uh, the way these communities are, are being forced out of those respective countries, uh, I think will have long-term political, uh, long-term social consequences for, for people that reside in those regions. So but I, I would say that, no, I mean, Assyrians have been very much embedded in, in many of the major political events in, in modern uh, Middle Eastern history. Uh, you know, I'm reminded of uh, Dr. Alda Benjamin from, uh, she works at the Smithsonian now. She's, a fellow, I believe, a fellow there. And, and she looked at Assyrian social and political organization in, in Iraq in the, in the 1970s and 80s and, and sort of seeing how Assyrians were negotiating their place within Ba'athist Iraq through uh, literary and musical sort of avenues. And I think it really reveals quite a bit about how, how people who are living under a dictatorship, how they can still sort of express who they are yeah. and be able to preserve who they are, in, in spite of the fact that they are operating within very constrained and, and difficult political setting. So for you, Assyrian studies is about knowing humans on a deeper level, on a, new, on a different level, and in a very unique level, about seeing how humans respond in different cultural groups and I think that's beautiful right? Yeah, absolutely I mean, yeah. it's a humanitarian cause the world needs to know what different peoples have gone through and how they responded because it could happen to any of us yeah absolutely absolutely and you know there are there have been some great attempts at, at preserving uh, Assyrian history and and promoting it at an academic level I mean I couldn't be able to do a lot of the work that I do without the the help of the modern Assyrian Research Archive uh, and their website is assyrianarchive.org. And I encourage anyone listening to this podcast to check out their website. And, um, you know, they've done a wonderful job of collecting and digitizing uh, periodicals and books and, I mean, all sorts of terrific material and making it available for free online. 
for you know someone like me or you know just even your average sort of uh, layman uh, Assyrian who's interested in, in, in sort of delving a little more into our history and, you know it's unfortunate because they don't really have the institutional support that they once did so they haven't been able to really update anything in a number of years and I mean I hope that can change maybe someone listening to this podcast will uh, react to that and, and try to help them out but they're doing a wonderful job uh, they've done a wonderful job AssyrianArchive.com uh, AssyrianArchive.org yeah yeah so with that being said, you're someone who I'm hoping throughout the years we're going to be able to follow your story, keep seeing where all this keeps going, and get you back on the show to hear what your next steps are. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I'd be more than happy to come back uh, and, and discuss, you know. I, I feel like we could check in every six months because you're developing quickly, you're reading and nonstop research, so I'm sure your brain is just blowing up with new ideas definitely yeah i mean there's always a lot of stuff happening in my life uh, good and bad uh, yeah. and, but uh, mostly good for right now yeah. uh, but it's it's really been a, it's been a terrific experience and i i absolutely love what i do it's very challenging yeah. uh, and it's um it's not for everybody but at the same time you know it's it's i enjoy it like you know i think if you love what you're doing you know no matter how painful it may be at times to do it i think you always will, will always find uh, a way to enjoy enjoy the work so I really do enjoy it quite a bit. So one of the things I love to let people say before we go is if you could say one thing to all the listeners listening to the Assyrian podcast, what would you say? I mean, I would say, you know, in respect to Assyrian studies and, and sort of the, you know, the just generally the academic study of Assyrians, I really encourage, uh, you know, especially the younger generation, young professionals to, uh, you know, take an interest in our history and, and to seek out those Assyrians, because obviously I'm, I didn't get into this to make millions of dollars. And, you know, I do it because I'm very passionate about our history. And I think, uh, you know, Assyrian history is an important area of, of study and it needs to be uh, promoted at the, you know, at an academic level. And I, I would encourage any young Assyrians listening to this podcast to, uh, you know, seek out uh, the Assyrian academics in our community, you know, and let's find ways of, you know, of preserving our history and promoting it in, in all sorts of new ways. So... Joey, it's been an absolute pleasure and joy to have you on the Assyrian Podcast. I can't wait to check in with you down the road. Keep going, man. Your work is so important. When when you're studying 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. and you hit those moments of like, what am I reading about this person for? <laughs> Just want you to know the Assyrian Podcast is behind you. And I think the Assyrian Nation is behind you. And thank you for all your work and, and keep at it. And everyone look them up. Find them on Facebook or wherever you are on social media. Thanks, Steve. Uh, yeah, you, you as well. Keep up the great work. Thank you.